Well, God's charge to us tonight is to preach the word. And we've got to preach the word because true victory only looks like worldly defeat. Now, it couldn't have been better timing to have this passage today in the same week as the funeral of our dear sister from 8 o'clock church, Hermoyne Thompson. Uh, she laboured hard these past few years to get God's word out into the world. She worked for the Bible Society. Uh, she was working in, in editing and formatting and things like that. She wasn't a translator. Uh, and that the, if you came to the funeral, there was a, a bunch of photos with her in different Aboriginal communities uh, with the latest uh, Aboriginal Bibles that have been published in the last few years, uh, handing it out uh, to the different tribes and groups in Australia. It was very exciting stuff. But it's a great passage uh, at the same time because, well, it's a passage written at the end of the Apostle Paul's life on earth. Uh, his final word, if you like, uh, to Timothy was the last letter written by Paul not long before his death. And in many ways, it's a bit of a sad finale. It's, it's not a happy ending in some ways, or it's happy in other ways. It's the same kind of finale that happened in 1536. Anyone remember 1536 well? No, okay. Oh, Dave, Dave, break. Um, in 1536, William Tyndale was killed. Now, William Tyndale was a man who was hounded and persecuted and lived in hiding in mainland Europe for the last 10 to 15 years of his life. In fact, he was only 40 when he died. That makes me feel like an old man because he was younger than I was. But from his mid-twenties to his death, he lived in hiding. And in many ways, his life makes an exciting story, although I don't think he would have thought it was very exciting at the time. Uh, an exciting story of smuggling, an exciting story of nearly being caught many times and just escaping at the last moment, an exciting story of a man who was prepared to stand against European empires and defy his own king in England. Uh, in fact, this, that king put a bounty on his head. There you go, put a price. He said, oh, and it wasn't dead or alive, it's just I want him dead and I'll pay you big money to do it. Uh, uh, and it's a true story. Uh, William Tyndale's main work was to translate the Bible into English from its original languages. Uh, he wanted people to have the Bible and to know the Bible and in his own words, so that even the ploughboy, the kind of social equivalent, I guess, of, of a McDonald's server, you know, the kind of the low of the lows, uh, kind of, even the ploughboy would know, be able to read and understand the scriptures. And because he did translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew and English, he was hunted, he was caught, he was imprisoned, and he was publicly executed by strangling and then by burning. We read our English Bibles and we take it for granted that we can have the Bible in our own language. It's dead easy for us to have the Bible. In fact, you've probably got multiple ones of them sitting around at home. You've got your, you know, your junior youth adventure Bible still sitting there and the green one they handed out to you at school was it read these days. Uh, and you, we just got them sitting around, don't we? Uh, I understand that one of the first thing that students from mainland China do when they're studying in Australian universities, when they, they fly into the country and they go and buy a Bible uh, because you're actually forbidden to have one in China and they want to find out what it says. They don't take it for granted and they're hungry to work out what it's about and why it's been banned. But we have freedom and access because men like William Tyndale and women as well were willing to stand up and be counted. 
They were willing to live in prison and under torture and to face grisly deaths because they saw the importance of getting God's word into a form in which people could read it and understand it. They saw it as a great wickedness that the Bible, the only Bible available, was in Latin. And they saw it as an even greater wickedness that the Latin that it was retained in was full of lies and inaccuracies designed to perpetuate Roman Catholic heresy. And, and people like that were willing to take on the world for the sake of us having this enormous privilege. Now, a little while ago, a letter was discovered written by Tyndale as he was locked up in a castle in Europe, in fact, the castle uh, he was executed from. It's his final letter, and we don't even know if it got posted. Um, he's writing to the, uh, the governor sort of, the, of, the, of the castle, the kind of manager, uh, and he's asking for help in this letter. I've actually printed it out on the outline uh, if you want to follow along or just listen as I read it. He says, I believe right worshipful, yeah, there's a way to, you know, no one calls me that. <laughs> I believe right worshipful that you are not ignorant of what has been determined concerning me. Therefore, I entreat your lordship and that by the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here in prison during the winter, you will request the procurator to be kind enough to send me from my goods, uh, which he has in his possession, a warmer cap. For I suffer extre extremely from cold in the head, being afflicted with a perpetual catarrh. That is, he's got a runny nose that just keeps keep going. Which is considerably increased in this cell. A warmer coat also, for that which I have is very thin. Also a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt of mine, if he'll be kind enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth for putting on above. He also has warmer caps for wearing at night. I wish also his permission to have a lamp in the evening, for it is wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the procurator, that is the kind of water of the jail, that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar and Hebrew dictionary that I may spend my time with that study. And in return, may you obtain your dearest wish, provided always it be consistent with the salvation of your soul. But if before the end of winter a different decision be reached concerning me, I shall be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. William Tyndale. Australians love winners. And we especially love it when the underdog gets up and wins, just like Queensland do every year in the origin. They're always the underdog, aren't they? <laughs> Not really. But Tyndale didn't look like much of a window, winner, did he? Cold, alone, shivering in the dark in his cell. And Paul, just like Tyndale at the end of his life, looks like a similar kind of failure. He'd always been dogged by trouble right throughout his life. Uh, but now in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he outlines what must look to the world like his failures. He kind of uh, flaunts them. Just a kind of long list. To start with, he too is in jail. We saw that in chapter 1. He's in chains. He's not just in a cell. He's chained up to the wall uh, of his jail. Uh, it's a jail that he'll never escape from. And only the del deliverance that looks ahead is that he might die and go to heaven. He's a man who looks like he's about to die in prison. But not only that, he's been deserted by his friends. 
It's so sad to see this great one uh, who was such a great team player and a great team captain and yet he's left all alone rotting in this cell. Uh, many, he says, have deserted him. Uh, he's been denounced by his friends overseas. Uh, in Chapter 1 he talked about the people in Asia Minor, that's present-day Turkey, uh, how they've all, um, they're all just backstabbing him. They're like, yeah, Paul's a loser. <laughs> Who wants to hang out with him? He names a few of them, Phygelus and Homogenes. They want nothing to do with him anymore. But then here in chapter 4, there's Demas in one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. Verse 10, see it there? Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. That's a pretty sad statement, isn't it? To be so close to the great apostle and yet to love the world more. How many Demases do you know who've walked away from God and the gospel and church because they love this world more? I think that's perhaps the greatest temptation we face to our faith today, even more than persecution. Uh, the temptations of materialism and pleasure and wanting to be someone in this world, having secretaries and, and going around the world on plastic cards, being told how important you are and gaining all the status symbols that you can have and all the kudos from everyone around. Demas, in love with the world, walked out. He says, Crescens and Titus, they've abandoned him too. And even those who are there who haven't deserted are absent. Uh, Tychicus is overseas, continuing the mission work. Uh, turns out Mark and Timothy aren't there either. Uh, Erastus and Trophimus, they stayed abroad. One's so sick that he couldn't travel. The other one, who knows why he's not around. And so there's Paul alone. But worse than being alone in a cell chained to the wall, he's being attacked. He's been attacked by Alexander, the metal worker, in verse 14, who's done him a great deal of harm. And now in verse 16, he's already had to defend himself, and I take it as defend himself on trial. And his defence is dangerous because he says he's only just been delivered from the lion's mouth. Now, that could be a metaphor, you know, you know be safe from the lion's mouth. Uh, but I take it it's literal because being thrown to the lions was fast becoming one of the most popular ways to deal with these pesky Christians in Rome. And he's expecting still more attacks to come in verse 18. And because of these kind of things, he longs for his young protege, the, the man who he calls his son in the faith, to come to him and to come ASAP, verse 9, especially before winter. Why does he want him to come so quick? Because to add to his misery, he's cold <laughs> and he wants Timothy to bring his cloak. Uh, it's just like Tyndale, isn't it? Tyndale was cold. He wanted a cap for his head and some warmer pants and a coat. Remember, there's no central heating in prisons in 16th century Belgium uh, and even worse in 1st century Rome. There were no fire, open fires in the prison cells, no luxuries like blankets or TVs. At least Paul had some warmer clothes of his own. He just wanted the cloak on top. Old Tyndale didn't even have those. But it's not just the cold. Both of them want their books. Both of them want to get on their work with the scriptures. In Tyndale's case, he had naturally finished translating the whole of the Old Testament. There was still some to go. Uh, and so he wants to keep learning Hebrew so that he can translate the rest. Now, I've studied Hebrew. Uh, it's a monster of a language to learn. I studied it for solid for three years. 
I don't think I could read a whole sentence of Hebrew without looking at half the words in a dictionary. And that's very, very difficult to do because in English, you put all the, the you know, ings and eds at the end of the words. In Hebrew, they put it at the start. So you're looking at this word thinking, I, I don't know, where do you find that in the dictionary? And worse, they don't even have the decency to write vowels down. I mean, if you tried reading one to, uh, 2 Timothy 4 with no vowels in the words, um, it's ridiculous. Anyway, Tyndale wants his dictionary. He wants his uh, grammar books and he wants his Bible because there's still work to do. I may be cold, I may be in prison, I may be alone, I may be facing death, but God's word needs to get out there. And Paul's exactly the same. He's attacked, he's deserted, he's just escaped one execution, but he's still got more court trials to face but he still wants to get on with the work and say, Timothy, when you come, bring my cloak and bring my scrolls and my books. He wants the parchments and he, he, want, and he wants to be warm enough to keep doing the work. I mean, imagine the situation. It's almost the epitome of what you would call a failure, isn't it? Here is the loser. Here is the victim. Here is the defeated one. He's, he's absolutely nothing in the eyes of this world. But it turns out it couldn't be any further from the truth because he's actually the victor. He's the winner. And you see the signs of that right throughout this chapter as well. Uh, it's not all lost. There is hope. First sign of hope, he's not completely alone. He's been deserted by uh, most people but not every single person. Notice he says Luke is there. Luke who, who went on to write the book of Luke. Um, presumably while he was sitting there with, there with Paul in prison. Uh, he's got the friendship of Timothy still, even though he's overseas. Uh, down in verse 21, he says there's people who have at least popped in uh, who want to send their greetings to Timothy. There's Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia. And then there's this guy, Mark. Mark's not there. Timothy's got to go and get him and bring him, verse 11. But Mark, if you're not familiar with him, um, he, he was a young guy who'd gone on the first missionary trip with Paul and with Barnabas, who were named after St Barnabas. There you go. Uh, Paul and Barnabas went on his mission uh, Mark, who's Barnabas' cousin, said, uh, can I come too? Can I be in? This looks like fun. Uh, they go to Cyprus, the first stop in their destination. He gets to the end of that and says, well, blow that for a joke. It's hard work. And he deserts them. He abandons them. And later, a couple of years later, he comes around and says, oh, can I come back on the team? I want to be part of things again. Paul's like, no way, you're a loser. I don't want you around. And Barnabas says, but he's my cousin, bro. Yeah, kind of. Um, I want him back on the team. And they have this massive fight, so much so that Paul and Barnabas don't speak to each other for years and years afterwards. It's kind of ruined their friendship. Mark ruined their friendship because he betrayed them uh, and then Barnabas sided with him and Paul wouldn't have him back. But it's interesting, at the end of Paul's life, what's Timothy got to do? He's got to bring Mark because he's useful to me. He's, he's the one that Paul wants. If you can bring anyone, Timothy, bring that guy. As There's been this kind of restoration in the relationship. I mean, we often make mistakes when we're young. Uh, sometimes we make terrible mistakes. Uh, but mistakes are not irredeemable. They can be forgiven. They can be patched up. And I take it that that holds out hope for people like Demas as well, that perhaps his life for the world might not be permanent. But 
it's not just friends. Friends are very important when you're under attack, but it's not just friends that keep Paul going. It's not just friends who enable him to fight the fight and run the race. Because who else has he got beside him other than his friends? Who else is there? God. God's there at my side. You see it in what he proposes about Alexander, who's done him the great harm. He's not trying to exact revenge on Alexander. He's not hiring Timothy as a wise guy, hitman, to go take him out. Uh, No, he says, leave it up to God. Verse 14, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. We're told over and over again in the Bible that as Christians we're not to take revenge, we're not to strike out, we're to turn the other cheek, we're not to fight back. Um, And here in 2 Timothy 4.14 you can see that Paul practised what he preached. He wasn't out for revenge on Alexander. He wants Timothy to be wise. He wants him to avoid this man. But he leaves it to the Lord to repay. Now some people get a bit thingy about thinking that the Lord exacts vengeance. They get a bit irked by the thought that God might be in the vengeance game. But it's actually vitally important and it's a very practical thing to know that God will avenge. It's very important. Don't repay evil with evil. Don't take vengeance because the Lord will take care of it. And it sounds so easy now, but mark this, when the time comes and you're attacked and you're attacked viciously and you're attacked unrighteously, if you don't trust God to deal with it in the end and deal with it rightly, You're going to either be sorely tempted to smash them in the face and strike back and hurt them and you'll be going for overkill, you will not stop, or you'll become bitter and twisted and all nailed up inside because you think they've gotten away with it. Both are awful, both are destructive, neither glorifies God. And so it's actually a safeguard to us to know that God will avenge It is his to repay. You've got to leave it to God. You've got to leave it to God to deal with it justly and deal with them rightly. But notice also that trusting God is not just for a future judgment because there's something else that God's been doing. It's there in verse 16. Paul says, when there was absolutely no one to help, no one came to my defence except verse 17, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. That's That's just what Jesus promised, isn't it? Some of you might remember from John's Gospel we looked at last year. Jesus said in John 15 and 16, when when they drag you before councils and kings and you put on trial for your life, uh, don't be worried about what to say. Don't be anxious. I will give you the words to say at the time. And notice what God's strength enables him to do here. The Lord stood on my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. He doesn't say the Lord stood at my side and whispered me the words so I could get off the trial and get out and sneak out of prison or anything like that. No, no. I was on trial and the Lord stood with me so that I could keep speaking his message, so that I could tell the Gentiles about Jesus. And you see it all through the book of Acts. Whenever Paul's dragged off before the courts and he preaches the gospel time and time again, and he's before Festus and King Herod and, and, and Agrippa and various other people you know, on trial for his life. He could, he's been flogged and so on. And they keep saying, why are you here, Paul? Why are you causing so much trouble? Why don't you just kind of leave these people alone? And he says, oh, I'm really glad you asked. Let me tell you about Jesus. 
<laughs> just over and over again, every time. He goes straight for the gospel. And he knows it's God who strengthens him and enables him to do it. Are you scared of being attacked as a Christian? I am. Uh, Paul was. Uh, he prays and he asks the Ephesians to pray for him that he might have boldness. You don't ask people to pray for things for you that you already have, do you? He's not naturally bold. He's naturally scared, just like I am every time I've got to share the gospel with someone. I'm scared of being rejected. I like being liked. I'm scared of looking stupid because I think I'm really smart. <laughs> uh, although they're pretty minor things, aren't they, compared to what the Apostle Paul and other Christians have had to face throughout history. Maybe that's because I'm a wimp. All right, I'm a wimp. <laughs> and if you're not scared, anyone here not scared of talking to people about Jesus? If you're not scared, come and talk to me afterwards because I've got lots of evangelistic conversation for you to have on my behalf. Um, you know, you can take them up for me. But most of us are scared. We're scared that we'll be lost for words. We're scared we won't have the right answer. We're scared, you know, of what they will think of us. Um, but when it does happen, you get into those situations. It's amazing that the consistent testimony of everyone I know who has, who has wanted to share anyway has had the words to say at the time. And it's happened right through history. The Lord gives us the wisdom and the wit in the situation to testify to Jesus and for Jesus. Now let me tell you about Polycarp. Polycarp, you know, name your child Polycarp, hey? Um, Polycarp was a, an old man. He was in his late 80s, early 90s. We know he was at least 86. Um, uh, he died in 161 AD. Uh, he... Uh, he was warned that the soldiers were coming to arrest him for being a Christian. Uh, he was a Christian leader, uh, and he knew they were coming, and so you know what he did? He cooked them dinner. Uh, and when they knocked on the door, they came and they found this you know, doddery old man. He said, come in, I've prepared a meal for you. I haven't poisoned it, and so on, you know, ate it himself. <laughs> and so, on. so they had dinner with him, and they thought, this can't be the right guy. So they went and checked with the other. They said, no, that's him. He's the one. Arrest him. We're going to kill him. They dragged him off. They dragged him into an arena filled with thousands of people chanting for his death. The proconsul said, um, uh, Polycarp, swear by Julius Caesar. Sorry, no, swear by Caesar. It wasn't Julius Caesar at the time. Swear by Caesar. Trust him alone. Uh, deny the atheists. And it's interesting because the Christians were the atheists um, because they didn't believe in the Roman gods and goddesses. And so they were called atheists. He says, deny the atheists, deny, deny the Christians. So what Polycarp did, this little old man, he kind of waved to the crowd and he said, I deny you atheists. <laughs> the proconsul was infuriated and he said, I will throw you to the wild beasts that I have chained up over there unless you renounce Christ. He said, oh. It's, I'm not allowed to, to turn from what is right to what is wrong. I mean, it's good to turn from evil to right, but not the other way around. And the proconsul blew his top. He said, all right, I'm going to burn you to death if you don't renounce Christ. And he went, oh. Well, that fire will, will go out after an hour or so, uh, whereas God's fire of eternal judgment will never go out on the ungodly. <laughs> Can you imagine saying that before thousands of people as they're about to lynch you? <laughs> he's, 
is bold. Um, uh, Kim's mum was telling me last week about a conversation she had with friends in a nursing home and, and they were paying out on religious people and how stupid and ugly they were and, and how they were, you know, had no brains in their head. And, uh, and, and she said to them, um, well, you're in a nursing home, you're going to meet him soon. <laughs> uh, just a little thing. <laughs> As Tyndale was being killed, he kept praying and crying out loud, Oh, Lord. Open the King of England's eyes. Open the King of England's eyes. And you know what? Just a few years later, at his own expense, the very same king printed English Bibles at his own expense uh, and he placed them in every church in England. And that's a lot of churches. They've got churches everywhere. They had one for every 200 people in the population those days. And the English Bible he placed in each of those churches was basically Tyndale's own translation. The Lord stood with Paul. The Lord stood with Polycarp. The Lord stood with Tyndale. The Lord stands with his people. When they're persecuted, when they're suffering, when they're standing up for the truth, God is with you. And so far, because of that, end of verse 17, Paul had been delivered. God knows how to deliver his people. He delivered Noah from the flood. He delivered Israel from Egypt. He delivered Jesus from the grave. God knows how to deliver his people. But, of course, you're not always delivered in this lifetime, are you? See, God will rescue. Paul's confident of that, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. But the rescue he's thinking of in verse 18 is that he'll bring me safely to heaven. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's why Christians can never be bullied into submission through torture, through jail, through whatever, because we believe in heaven, because we believe that God will rescue, whether it's in this life or in the next life, but he will do it. And there is no way that you can stop him doing it. That's how Paul could do it. That's how Tyndale could do it. That's how we can do it. And so you look at Paul's confidence in verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not only to me, who else? But also to all those who have longed for his appearing. That's a great message from God, isn't it? It's a great promise that those of us who long for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us who long for the day of judgment when he'll come back, we will be victorious. We will be the winners. We will receive the crown of righteousness on the day and we're going to receive it from his hand. And therefore we've got nothing to fear ultimately. There is only victory in store in glory. We are the winners. We may look like the losers. We may feel like the losers. We may have terrible things happen to us and no one regard us and everyone insult us, but, but we're the winners because Jesus has won for us the eternal crown which cannot be removed if we continue faithful and fearless. And so what are we Christians to do now? Knowing that that is the case, we are to keep going. How do we keep going? How do we stand up and cope and even flourish as his people in the midst of terrible opposition? How do we fight the good fight? How do we run this race? How do we keep this faith? How do we receive the victor's crown? How do we keep trusting God in all these things? Well, three things by way of application to do. First thing, 
recognise the inevitability. It is inevitable that you will face opposition and be persecuted if you are a Christian. Somewhere, sometime, it will happen. You will be opposed. Won't happen necessarily all the time. Won't necessarily be the worst of things that have happened to Christians, but it will happen. And you just got to grab hold of that. You just got to kind of face the reality. You got to make it part of your emotional makeup to know that that's what's happening. We were told that in chapter three and verse twelve that everyone who lives in a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so, why wouldn't you expect it? Expect it's going to happen. No, you know, no one running into an NRL match expects that they're going to come off clean. They don't expect to come off without sweat. They don't expect to come off without some form of bump or bruise or pressure or pain or injury unless they're completely stupid. Although I've met some props in my day. I've been a prop. Hang on. Uh, Christians are front row forwards. We are running into trouble. You will face opposition and the faster you come to terms with it, the more chance you've got of not only surviving it, but doing extraordinary things during it. Second thing, friendship. And particularly Christian friendship and fellowship is very, very important. The kind of friends and teamwork that Paul had and that Paul lost is very, very important. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says we mustn't neglect to meet together and all the more as we see the day of the Lord approaching, but let's gather together and encourage one another, spur each other on the love and good deeds. See, the Christian that thinks they can make it their own in the world like a lone ranger without others is either not a Christian or they're not going to be one for much longer. We need each other and we neglect meeting together at our own peril and at each other's peril. You've got to be the kind of person who always sticks with Christian friends and who's absolutely committed to your church, whether it's this one or wherever you might happen to end up. You've got to be committed. And even those days when you don't feel like going, it's like, oh, yeah, whatever. Um, and you think, well, I'm learning nothing there. Well, don't go for your own sake. Think of the other people who are there who might need you. We must be willing to stand up for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for each other. We must not forsake each other. We must keep gathering together and spurring each other on. But I've left out the third and most important bit, the bit that tells us what fighting the fight and running the race actually looks like. What is it that we're supposed to be doing? Well, chapter 4 and verse 1, what Paul tells Timothy to do, what Timothy from chapter 2 is meant to pass on to others, who will then pass it on to others, and what God is telling us to do, you to do, and me to do, in the presence of God, you've got to recognise God's here amongst us, and in the presence of Christ Jesus, he's, he's also here. He's the one who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of the appearing of his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. You don't fight with swords, you don't fight with clubs, you don't fight with spears, you don't fight with guns, you don't fight with politics. You fight with God's word. You take up the sword of the spirit and you start laying waste to people around you. Not that you bash them over the head, but you speak to them the truth. For this is the power of God for salvation we saw last week. This is what changes people's hearts and minds. This is what changes societies. It's what the scriptures 
afford to make you wise for salvation and to remould and to remake people into the kind of people who Jesus wants them and you to be. And so he says we're to preach the word. When's the right time to do that? Well, in season and out of season. I take it that's pretty much all the time, whether it's convenient or whether it's not convenient. And it will often be inconvenient because verse 4 warns us that the days are coming when people want their itching ears tickled by silly myths and nice-sounding lies. Anything but the simple and profound truth that Jesus died in Palestine 2,000 or so years ago for our sins and who rose to life again and is now seated in heaven and will come one day to judge the living and the dead. And do you know why any season is good seating for preaching the word, for sharing the gospel, for sharing your faith? Because the judgment of the world is soon upon us and they will be facing their maker and their judge. How do we go about preaching the word? He says you correct, rebuke and encourage. The very thing the scriptures themselves do in chapter 3. And you do it in a manner which is befitting of God's people. You do it with great patience and with careful instruction. We do it gently and carefully because we really care that people hear it. We really care that people believe it. We really care because it's the gospel of salvation. This is the only way to be right with God and to receive that victor's crown. This is how you trust God. That's how you fight the fight and run the race and receive the crown yourself. You trust God, you follow the Saviour and you take his word to a dark and dying world knowing that there'll be opposition, standing and sticking together with your brothers and sisters in Christ but preaching the word, prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That's what the Apostle Paul did. That's what Timothy was to do. That's what Polycarp did. That's what Tyndale did. That's what Hermoyne did for the last years of her life. That's what we are to do. That is what God is calling us to, to preach the word, to fight the fight, to run the race, because true victory only looks like worldly defeat, but it's not. Father, we pray that we would take your word to heart that we would suck up our pride. We want to look good to the world. We want to be seen as winners. But, Father, there are more important things to do. So help us to preach your word, to share Jesus with everyone we come across, stranger, friend, colleague. We pray that we might do it out of love for them and to glorify you, the King and the Saviour and the Judge of all men. We pray that this would be the season, that there be many who'd hear it, who come to faith as we share with them, particularly as we come to our Easter services and as we look ahead to our second term of outreach and we're going to try hard to reach as many people as we can for you. We pray, please, you'd be pleased to change them, that you would lead them to salvation, that you would change their lives. And we pray that we might have the joy seeing that, seeing that. But even if it's out of season... Please enable us to keep going, to face the opposition well, to keep trusting you, to not desert, to stand by our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we might work together for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.